gospel living? Well, how do we walk the walk as well as talk the talk? In this extract from a sermon that was preached in 2017 in Temple Patrick Reformed Church, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 12, verse 14 to 21, and find a challenge about moral and ethical issues. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Semper Reformata Podcast. Paul is seeking to apply the gospel in a very practical sense to every area of our lives. Practical theology. Theology that will affect how we respond to what Christ has done for us. How we will live our lives. Doing these things won't cleanse your soul. They won't bring you salvation. They are a proper response to the salvation that God has already granted to us. The passage I want to continue with this evening is from verse 14 down to verse 21 in Romans chapter 12. And in a way it presents me with a difficulty because it's self-explanatory. Should never need to preach on it. It's plain English. There was once uh, a woman in a church that I was, of which I was the pastor, and um, many years ago, she, her name was Margaret. She went to see one of our elders, and she explained to him that she had difficulty understanding a portion of scripture. And this elder said, "What portion of scripture is it you have difficulty with, Margaret?" She said, I have difficulty with that portion of scripture that says that women are to remain silent in the church. What does that mean? She says. The elder thought about it for a minute. Ah, Margaret, he says, never you worry what it means, you just practice it. That'll be good enough. He didn't need to tell her what it meant. It was blatantly obvious what it meant. All that she had to do was practice it. And you see, it's exactly the same with this. We should never have to preach a sermon on this. All of this is self-explanatory. All of this is practical. All of this provides us with a challenge. And here's a reason why we do need to preach on it. Because despite the fact that it is so black and white in its terms... We simply fail to put it into practice. This is about ethical issues that face the church. Way back in the 70s when I was studying for the ministry, I was studying a topic called Christian ethics. I don't know why they do it in Bible colleges today. I've learned, for example, just a couple of weeks ago that they don't do systematic theology anymore. I don't wonder if they do Christian ethics. 
Way back in the 70s, I was studying a course of Christian ethics, and it was a very important part of the, the course in those days. And one of the books that I found really helpful was a book by John Stott called Issues Facing Christians Today. Very useful book. It dealt with all the topics of the day from a Christian perspective. Things like abortion and euthanasia and divorce. It's now in its fourth edition. I don't have any updated editions of it. But what cover what topics would it cover now that weren't covered back in the seventies? Things that when I was studying Christian ethics I would never have dreamt of. This business of same sex marriage, transgenderism, terrorism, the issues facing Christians today are even different issues than they were 30 or 40 years ago. And of course, even in our our local context here in Northern Ireland, we're faced with our own particular difficulties, aren't we? Difficulties of ethical issues being brought about by how we treat victims of the troubles. Dealing with the past, reconciling conflicting views of history. How do we balance competing rights and responsibilities? And yet the challenge of it all is exactly the same. Because back in the day when I was studying Christian ethics, the answer to every problem was the gospel. Apply the gospel. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's taking the teaching of the gospel that he has already expounded and he's going to apply it in a very practical manner. And that hasn't changed. Even though the issues have changed, the heart of man hasn't changed. It's still deceitful, sinful, desperately wicked, full of sin and full of cunning and deceit. And the gospel hasn't changed. For the offer of salvation in Christ is available for those who are his. How then will the Christian apply the gospel in modern society? How will we apply it to our lives, to our homes, and to issues that arise with regard to our pagan neighbours and friends? Here's four issues that I can see in the text, and I hope that they help. The first one is the issue of persecution. See, the Bible is right up to date here. We are noticing more persecution of the church. And in verse 14, Paul says, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now there you are. And there is an amazing challenge for all of us. The hearts of the wicked have never changed. The persecution of the church that went on right in the early church has endured right throughout history to this very day. We will expect persecution. We were told by the Saviour that we would be persecuted, that we would be hated because he is hated. Now how will we react to that? Positively speaking, for those who persecute us, as Christians, we ought to, pers- to we ought to bless those who persecute us. Now, you might say, why would I do that? Why on earth would I, uh, who am being persecuted, why would I want to be a blessing to the people who persecute me? Because I was God's enemy. 
I was, in a sense, directing what I thought was my persecution towards God. I was rebelling against him. And he blessed me with salvation. Positively, we will bless those who persecute us. Negatively, we will not curse them. There's so much of that going on in Christian circles. Someone does us a bad turn. And our first reaction is that we will do a bad turn to them. But remember that the Christian's attitude will be the direct opposite of the attitude of the world. Verse 2 again. We will not be conformed to this world. We will not do what this world expects us to do. We will not follow its ways or its patterns or its paths. We will treat those who persecute us differently than if we were in the world. After all, the people that are persecuting the church these days are not our natural enemies. Sure they're not. Oh, they make themselves our enemies. Of course they do. They make themselves our enemies. But doesn't Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not actually wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Spiritual wickedness in high places. Our enemy is Satan who has blinded the minds of those who persecute the church who has taken them and who has blinded them and is using them to achieve his ends. The people who persecute us are not essentially our basic enemy, although they have made themselves enemies. So if they're not our enemy, what are they? They're our harvest field. You think of those people that persecute the church. You can hear them in television. In this local country, you will hear people who will speak evil of Christianity, who will mock the Lord, who will mock worship. We call that persecution. Who will go after us when we take a stand for biblical fidelity. Who will call us names. Dear help us, people calling us names. They're calling us homophobic. And they're calling us Islamophobic. And they call us bigots. Out in other parts of the world, there are Christians being put to death for their faith. And the people who are persecuting them and who are persecuting us in a much milder way, those people are our mission field. Those people are our harvest field. Those people are the people whom we are to reach with the gospel. We're told here that we are to bless them. How can we bless them any more than when they persecute us to tell them the good news that Christ died for sinners? They're our harvest field. Um... The greatest blessing that we can ever be to them is to tell them about the good news. The Lord Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples back in John 4, the passage that we read, 
talks about how the fields are white on the harvest. Look, lift up your eyes. The people all around us, the pagans who are reviling the church and the Christian faith, they are the ones who we are to reach for the gospel. They are like Saul of Tarsus, persecutors. They are not beyond the reach of grace, not by a long means. It's up to us as a response to what the Lord has done for us, to carry the message to them, to bless them, even as they persecute us, to bless them with the gospel and with the message that Christ died for sinners. The fields are already white for harvest. Our job is to go into those fields Take the good news. Reap the harvest. Persecution. How will the Christian apply the gospel when persecution comes? Here's how he will do it. He will bless those who persecute him. And that will entail continuing to witness even to the point of death. And we will not curse them or revile them for what they are doing. Here's a second wee ethical issue. What about goodwill towards our pagan neighbours? Our neighbours all around us are experiencing exactly the same ups and downs and highs and lows of life just as we are. So in verse 15 here, Paul says we're to rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. There you are. That's a measure of empathy and a measure of neighbourliness that goes to both extremes and both ends of the, of the spectrum. We have to go through what they are going through if we're going to ever apply the gospel to our lives. We're going to have to weep with them as Christ wept over Jerusalem. And after all, it's weeping that builds a relationship We're going to have to go to their funerals and extend the hand of sympathy and give them a warm embrace when it's needed and show them that practically we care for them. At the same time, we must rejoice with them. You know, sometimes that's harder. That's a challenge. Sometimes our attitude uh, reflects the, the perplexity of the psalmist when he was puzzled over why God allowed wicked people to prosper. And we do not know why, but we do know, like the psalmist, what their end will be. But here on earth, when one of our neighbours who perhaps has persecuted us in some minor way, perhaps has done us no favours in some way, perhaps has incurred some kind of a problem for us that we didn't anticipate. We're to rejoice with them when things go well with them. Sometimes the easiest emotion when things go well with others is jealousy. I wish I had got that. I wish I'd got that promotion. I wish I'd got that pay raise. I wish I'd got that job, that business. I wish I'd got that family, that house. And yet what we're to do is to rejoice 
and not to gloat whenever things get taken from them. We're to rejoice with them and to weep with them as members of a gospel community. It is our responsibility to live in empathy with the people around us, going through what they are going so that they can trust us with the message that we're going to bring them. Persecution, goodwill to our neighbours, keeping things in perspective. Sometimes that's hard. Very often we get overwhelmed by the things of the world. So in verse 16, Paul writes, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. If there's two things we want to see here, it is that we want to live peaceably with other men. In verse 18, Paul says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. There are two qualifiers to that. We are to live peaceably with all men, If it's possible to do so, and as much as we can influence it to do so, that's always been the case. Christians by nature ought to be peaceful people. And the Bible tells us that as believers, we are to live peaceably with all men. But as far as keeping things in perspective is concerned, not only are we to look at others and do our very best to live at peace with them. But we'd have an attitude to ourselves as well. An attitude to others, an attitude towards ourselves. We are not to think too highly of ourselves. Now Paul's already said this earlier in the chapter. But he's going to reinforce it. And he's going to say that we are not to... uh, we're to, we're to be one, verse 16, we're to be of the same mind, one toward another. Mind not high things, condescend to men of low estate, be not wise in your own conceits. Do you know there's nothing worse than Christian snobbery? There's nothing worse than only wanting to be seen with the right people, with successful people, with high earners. Prosperity preachers, for example, are teaching all the time that we should avoid those people who hold us back from achieving our destiny. What nonsense. There's a couple in my place of employment during the week talking about wedding photography. And uh, they were remarking how much people seem to spend on weddings these days. And they said to me, you know, we have friends who are going on holidays this year. They haven't been on holidays since their honeymoon eight years ago. And they're going on holidays this year because they've just paid off the loan that financed their wedding. Eight years of finance. And I thought to myself, how foolish is that? Just to keep up with the Joneses. Just to show how special you are. 
just because you're conceited about yourself and you want to mix with the right people. And here Paul's saying that we are to mind not high things. We're to be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things. Condescend to men of low estate. We're instructed to associate with humble people, to be humble people, to do humble things, not to be heavily opinionated about our own importance. So as far as applying the gospel, persecution, goodwill to our neighbours, a perspective that puts us in our right place in society. And lastly, getting revenge. Dearly beloved, verse 19. Avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Now there you are. Why would a Christian even say, just wait, I'll get my own back? It might as well one does it. I'll get even. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Just wait, I will find out. I will get my own back. I will. A Christian would never even seek such a thing. Consider again the gospel. For this is all about the practical application of the gospel. God loved us when we were his enemies. He sent his son to die for us when we were his enemies. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us so that we would have what we don't deserve. God didn't get even with me. He has forgiven me at great cost. We're to apply that principle to others. Very practically, Paul tells us how. He said we're never to return evil for evil in verse 17. Recompense no man evil for evil. He tells us in verse 19 that we're to leave our hurts and our burdens and our offences with the Lord. We're not to avenge ourselves. It's not something we're to go out and do if someone has inconvenienced us or because of someone's actions we have been caused expense or because of someone's words we have been slandered we're to leave it with the Lord after all he knows these situations better than we do and there is coming a day of wrath on which all the wrongs of this world will be put right, and the satisfaction of justice will be complete. Terrorist leaders in this country have died and never, ever answered in an earthly court for the awful crimes that their terrorist organizations have committed. Don't be upset by that. Leave that with the Lord. Don't get worked up about it. Judgment and vengeance... Rest with him. We can trust him that he will do what is right 
and God's justice will at the end be fully satisfied, either in the punishment of those who have sinned against him or satisfied in Christ for those who are his. So when it comes to revenge, we don't return evil for evil. When it comes to revenge, we leave these things with the Lord. In fact, we go one step further than that. We make their consciences burn by being good to them. Imagine that. See, the natural instinct is that we would get revenge. But the person who has caused this problem, who has made himself our enemies, in verse 20, we're told, if thine enemy hunger, say, well, there you are then, you deserve that. No, feed him. And if your enemy thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Yes, we do. We heap coals of fire upon them. For sure, for having been shown undeserving love as a witness to the love of Christ, we will certainly render them more culpable for their lack of repentance and judgment day. But some commentators here look at this in a different manner. And they say, yes, maybe by being kind to our enemies, we will scar them, sear their consciences, and burn their consciences. And the Holy Spirit might use that simple act of undeserved kindness to convict them of their sins and to bring them to repentance. Nothing more and nothing less. If we were to repay evil with good, surely that would make such a difference to the people who have caused the problem. And so Paul summarizes his teaching. When we are persecuted, we are to bless those who persecute us, never to curse them. When our neighbours around us are rejoicing, our pagan neighbours around us, they're rejoicing in, in some achievement, we're to go and rejoice with them. And when they are in sorrow, we're to weep with them so that we go through the highs and lows of life with them. And we are to keep this all in perspective trying to our best with others to live peacefully with other men and women as much as we can. And yet we're not to regard ourselves as being any better than them. We're to be humble people, living humble lives and doing humble things, never seeking to avenge ourselves but to Trust God that he will do what is right. And Paul summarizes all of that by saying, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is the gospel. That is what Jesus did for us. He overcame evil 
for us with good, with his goodness, left on the cross to hang and to die. Let us practice that gospel to others.